Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Listen to for God's word as it comes to us from the second chapter of James, verses 14 through 24. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good? What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 9 to 16. I will preface this by saying that you're not going to understand much of what he's talking about. I'm just going to say this up front because it's very convoluted and complicated. I will make more sense of it when we get to the sermon. Is that cool? Do you understand? Okay, if you do understand it, kudos to you, okay? Okay. Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised? or also on the uncircumcised. We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestors of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also who follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. The word of the Lord. (laughs) All right, so as you all know, we've been doing our sermon series, Church and State. We are talking about the history of the early church 
as it comes to us the documents that we find in the New Testament. And the question that we are asking through this series is, what does the church in the first century have to say to us about being the church in the 21st century? Last week we talked about many of the conflicts and the infighting that plagued Paul's early churches. And where we focused most of our time was on the conflicts that arose due to the fact that Christianity was so new. Many people didn't know exactly what they should believe, and so this caused conflict within the church. But then I touched on another source of conflict, where Paul had set up his churches, and there were these groups of people who were coming in, and they were undercutting Paul. They were saying, everything Paul taught you is wrong, and so they teach something different, and the church would devolve into chaos. This morning, we are going to talk about that conflict. We're going to talk about how it happened, why it happened, the people who were involved in it, and ultimately, we're also going to talk about what this conflict has to say to us about being the church in the 21st century. Now, to understand this particular conflict, we need to go back to the beginning, back to when we find the opening of the early church directly following Jesus's resurrection appearances. So following these appearances, I told you, if you remember back from the sermons, that the Jesus's disciples, they're returning to their villages. They did not stay together in a single group, right? They returned to their villages and they started talking about Jesus to, their, to the people in their villages and in those synagogues. And so by going back to these places, based on this map, what you could probably tell is that they are preaching to people who identify as what? They are Jewish, right? So important that you get this. So important that you hear this. That when Jesus' disciples go back, they are speaking to people who are Jewish. Jesus' movement is Jewish because Jesus himself was Jewish. Really need to hammer that point home. So... The target audience for his disciples in the early days are Jewish. Okay. Then this guy Paul comes along. And he says, you know what I want to do? I want to take Jesus' message from the Holy Land, which is located down there in the corner, out into the rest of the world. I want to go preach it out into the rest of the world. That's what I want to do. And we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. So what does Paul do? He would go to a city... He would usually go to a city with some type of large Jewish population. He would go into the city. He'd preach in the synagogue about how Jesus was going to come back any day now, and he'd form a church with that. Very important here that in talking about this, who is his target audience, at least in the early days? It's still Jewish. Very important. Okay, but there's a difference between the Jews in the Holy Land and the Jews that Paul is preaching to, the, the Jews that he's trying to convert. You have to understand this difference between these two. To give you a sense of the difference, the Jews in the Holy Land, the people in Jerusalem, they would often memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You all have Bibles in your pews. If you were to just take that and take those pages and put them together, they memorized the entire thing. They knew it by heart. And they had also taking the time to have education around those laws, the 613 laws that are found in the Torah. Whereas when you're talking about the people to whom Paul is preaching, he's going out and he's talking to these people, and they know about the Torah. They, they're familiar with it, but they don't know it by heart. 
they haven't taken the time to memorize it in that way. And so because of this distinction between the Jews who live in Jerusalem and the Jews who live out in the world, the Jews who live in Jerusalem, they refer to these people out in the Mediterranean as Jewish Gentiles, meaning you identify as Jewish, but you live according to the customs of Gentiles. So for instance, if you were a Jewish Gentile, a lot of times you wouldn't eat kosher. You would eat pork and you'd eat shellfish and all the things that are prohibited in the Torah. And one thing that you did believe because you were a Jewish Gentile, the thing that did set you apart is the fact that you believed that there was one God. You were monotheistic. That did set you apart from everyone else. So what you have to appreciate is that when Paul is trying to convert all these people, these people out here that you see in this little path that he's going on, these are people who are marginally Jewish. They're loosely Jewish. Kind of like people in the church, right? Like you can have people in the church who kind of say, yeah, I'm Christian. I go on Christmas and Easter. You're like, yeah, I know what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about, right? It's the loosely affiliated, loosely affiliated people. And those are the people who Paul's talking to. Whereas the people back in the Holy Land, these are the people to whom Jesus was dealing with during Jesus's original movement. And these people are very Jewish. Do you see the difference between the two? You really need to understand that distinction for this sermon to work today. So you need to know very Jewish back in the Holy Land, and then you have marginally Jewish kind of out in the rest of the world. So Paul, he's planting all these churches. He's going, as you can see, from one place to another. And as is common in churches, people will sometimes say, hey, to their friends, come, see what's going on here. And so people start coming in, and these Jewish Gentiles, they, they bring in other Jewish Gentiles. And sometimes they bring in people who are just Gentiles. They are not Jewish at all. They know nothing about Judaism. And so this question starts to come up in Paul's churches. If you're a Gentile and you come to one of Paul's churches, do you first need to convert to Judaism and become Jewish? This is a question that comes up. And Paul's answer to this question is no. You don't need to convert to Judaism. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. You're good to go. Now, most people assume that where Paul gets this answer to his question is from Jesus himself during the resurrection appearance that Paul has with Jesus. So, in other words, when this resurrection appearance happens, Jesus says to Paul, look, hey, Paul, when you go out into the world and you're getting all these Gentiles, don't make them convert to Judaism. Not necessary. Just have them believe in me. We're good to go. But what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that Paul's way of thinking about this, this idea that Paul has, more than likely, it did not come directly from Jesus. That this way of thinking about faith, getting you into the, to the Christian movement, that this was an adaptation in the same way that speaking in tongues, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about speaking in tongues, that was an adaptation specifically for Paul's churches for the circumstances that he was facing. And I have two points of evidence that I would like to show you to support my hypothesis this morning. For the first point of evidence, I need you to get into Paul's shoes for a moment. So I want you to imagine, you're walking all around the ancient world, you're going through all this trouble to set up all these churches. And the reason why you're doing this is because you believe that Jesus is going to come back any day, any day now, and you need to get as many people into Jesus' movement as possible so that when Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom, that people don't end up in a bad place. Because that's what you want. It's, 
You want to you help them out. So when people start joining your churches that have no affiliation with the Jewish faith, you want to make it as easy as possible for these people to remain part of your church, which isn't going to happen if they have to convert to Judaism. Because if converting to Judaism is a requirement, then not only do you have to eat kosher, which by the way is really hard out in the Gentile world, because most of what they ate, ate didn't have anything to do with what you found in the Torah. Hard to be Jewish out there, so you can't do that. And then on top of it, if you're a male, you have to get circumcised. And unlike being circumcised as a baby, where you don't remember how much it hurts, when you're an adult, you're going to remember how much it hurts because circumcision is a rough thing, particularly when you're older. So as you can imagine, converting to Judaism acted as kind of a deterrent, if we're being totally honest, for getting outsiders to become part of the Christian movement. And so this is why Paul develops his theology that all one needs to do to be part of the Christian faith is believe in Jesus. It's easy to understand, it's easy to implement, and far less painful than the alternative. So, we see this in Paul's letter to the Romans. I noticed that my jokes on circumcision are not landing like I thought that they were. <laughs> I was hoping for a better response than that. We see that he's talking about this idea here in his letter to the church in Rome. So let's take a look at what he has to say. He said, is this blessedness, now this is the, the blessedness that is given to the Jewish people, is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. That's important there. Don't remember that little part, the quotes. How then was it reckoned to, Ab to him? It was, before, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Okay, now do you know what he's quoting from right there, what those quotes are? Do you know what he's referring to? What book of the Bible? It happens to be my favorite book of the Bible, Genesis. It's why we went over it in the beginning when I first got here, because Genesis is the foundation of everything you read in the New Testament. So what Paul is essentially saying right here is that the reason why Abraham was given all of these blessings and all of these promises by God is because Abraham had faith. It was the faith of Abraham that God cared more about than the fact that he was circumcised. And so Paul is making an argument. What he's essentially saying is that if God cares more about faith and belief than adherence to the law, which is the whole idea of becoming Jewish, then when it comes to Gentiles, shouldn't God care more about faith and belief with them than them converting over and becoming Jewish? That's his argument. Do you understand his argument? Okay. Now this leads me to my second point of evidence that Paul is adapting this way of thinking specifically for his audience. So I told you all that there's these group of Christians that are coming in, these groups of people, they're coming into Paul's churches and they're saying, hey, everything Paul taught you is wrong. And if you were here last week, I mentioned to you that the person who was sending these groups of people, they were coming from James, the guy back in Jerusalem who's running the church. Now, did you hear what I just said? Who's sending them? James. And who is James? Jesus' brother. The guy who grew up with Jesus. The head cheese, like the big guy back 
in Jerusalem. He's sending these groups of people to Paul's churches, and he's having them tell Paul's converts everything Paul is teaching you is wrong. So what is so wrong about Paul's teachings? Well, according to James, if you want to be part of Jesus' movement, you have to be Jewish first. So whereas Paul is sitting there saying, if you're a Gentile, then you don't need to convert to Judaism, James is saying, oh, hold on, you absolutely do. Not only do you need to eat kosher, not only do you have to follow the laws, the 613 laws in the Torah, but guys, you've got to get circumcised. Very important that you do that. So you can see that James and Paul, they're in total agreement with each other, right? They hate each other. I mean, I, I would almost go that far that they really, really dislike each other that much because they're on opposite ends of a spectrum. If you're sending guys to, the, to Paul's churches, that clearly shows you the dislike that James has for Paul if he's trying to undercut him that bad. And so for James, what he's sitting there is saying, he's saying that faith alone is not enough. There is more that you have to do if you want to be part of Jesus' movement. And this is what he talks about in his letter. Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see what's happening here? He's quoting the exact same scripture from Genesis that Paul quoted in the letter that we read from Paul. But he's coming to a very different conclusion than Paul came to. Basically, the conclusion that James is coming to is he's saying that the reason why God was willing to give Abraham all of those blessings and all of those promises is because of his actions. It's because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son that he received those promises. So from James's perspective, and we could argue whether James's perspective is correct, but from his perspective, faith alone is not enough. You have to perform certain actions if you want to be part of Jesus' movement. And we can see that when he starts defining what these actions could be, why he believes that faith without action is meaningless. Take a look at what he says right here. Can faith save you? Like, do you see this? This is in our Bible. Can faith save you? By the way, next week is Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday, this, is the, this happens to be the 500th anniversary of when, who started the Reformation? Luther. Martin Luther. Started it all. Martin Luther detested this book, James. He wanted to get rid of it completely, but he couldn't do it because too many people in the past had held on to it and cited it. But he wanted to get rid of it specifically because of that sentence. Can faith save you? The entire point of the Reformation was that the only thing that can save you is faith. He wanted to chuck it. He couldn't get rid of it. And I'm glad that he didn't because it shows you if he had gotten rid of that, we would not know about this conflict that's going on in the church. So James says, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now make no mistake about it, this is not just James telling you what he thinks. This is targeted directly at Paul, and it's intended to undercut and undermine Paul's theology. James's way of thinking about Jesus is a very Jewish way of thinking about Jesus. So the way that the Jews showed love to God was by living out the law. You perform certain actions. That's how you love God. And so for James, if you want to be part of Jesus' movement, you have to perform certain actions. Those two things cannot be divorced from one another. And when he's defining these actions, just take a look at this. When he's defining what you're supposed to do, doesn't it sound a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 25, this text that we come back to again and again and again. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. So if James, Jesus' brother, the guy who grew up with Jesus and arguably knows Jesus better than anyone is saying that faith alone in Jesus is not enough, then I think that's a very strong argument that Paul has veered from Jesus' original intentions. If James is to be believed, then it seems that Jesus never intended for his disciples to abandon Judaism. If we were being true to Jesus' original intentions, then we would still be worshiping in the synagogues and we would still identify as Jewish. But that's not what happened, is it? Not what happened at all. Because ultimately, Paul's way of thinking won out. And the reason why his thinking won out is because of a change that takes place in the church that we're going to talk about next week. And to summarize that change for you today, it's basically that the composition of the church shifts from being predominantly Jewish to predominantly non-Jewish. And when that happens, Paul's way of thinking, it makes a lot more sense, it's a lot more practical for a church that's filled predominantly with non-Jews, which is what you all are, right? That's why it ends up making the day. But we're going to talk more about that. It's more complicated than that, but that's just the beginning of it. So, where does this leave us? We've just talked about this whole big conflict between James and Paul. Where does it leave us? Well, I think that the conflict here brings up a really important question for us as the church in the 21st century, which is, is it belief that leads to action, as Paul would have us think, or is it action that leads to belief, as James suggests in his letter? And you might be sitting there thinking, it doesn't really matter. Both are fine. But the fact is, it does matter. And both have ramifications for how we exist in the world. And so I want to give you two examples of how the interplay of these two ideas can be critical to how we live in the world. So perhaps one of the most visceral examples of how belief can lead to action is when Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933. Hitler won the election with 43% of the vote. But immediately when he became German Chancellor, he came into office 
and he took control of all of the media outlets. And at that time, it was just newspapers and radio stations because he wanted both of those things to be consistent with his ideology. But even more than the consistency, the reason why his propaganda was so effective is because of the way that he was able to isolate people with his message. So what happened is he takes control of the media, and one thing he does with the radio stations, which is very interesting, is he limits the distance the signal can go. He reduces it down so that no radio station can send a signal that goes beyond 15 miles. And he does this for a very practical reason. Because if anybody takes over that radio station, and anybody starts saying a message that is contradictory to the one that he's putting out there, that signal can only get 15 miles out. So it's not going to get to the next town over. It's only going to be within that town. And what that does is it prevents people from coming together and being able to unify against him. What it also does is it makes it very hard for you to hear any type of contrary message. So when you only hear one message all the time and you don't hear any alternatives, you end up believing that message. And so when Hitler transitions from quarantining the Jewish people to literally eliminating them, killing them off, nobody really says anything. Nobody says, hey, maybe we should stop doing this, because the propaganda had laid a foundation of belief that then informed their actions in Germany. So this is a very visceral example of how belief can lead to action. Now let me give you an example of how action can lead to belief. I'm going to give you an example from my own life. So I've told you all in the past that when I was growing up in Virginia, I went to a high school that could be pretty rough at times. And one of the things that I had to deal with in high school was that there were groups of people who really came at me. And one of these groups, they self-identified, this is not my term for them, this is their term for themselves, they call themselves rednecks. And so these people, they hurled a lot of abuse at me. And as a result, I developed a really intense prejudice against these people. Now, I get to high school, get to the end, I leave, don't have to deal with them anymore. My life is so much better. I'm so happy. I'm out in the world. And then I get to seminary, and I get this great job at Prince United Methodist Church, which is a real plum church to get in town. I'm directing their youth ministries, great families, great kids, all this stuff. But the mission trip that they go on every single year is called ASP, Appalachia Service Project. And so we are traveling in vans down to the area of Appalachia in Virginia, and we're traveling down to Tennessee or West Virginia, and we're helping these people against whom I had developed this super intense prejudice. So we go on the first mission trip, and I come back, and I try to get everything changed try to change it completely. I say, no, here's what we need to do. We need to go to different places. We need to try different things, because that's just one place we can go. We can go to all kinds of different places. And they weren't having any of that. They didn't want to do that, because what we do here is really neat. Like, we take our kids on different types of trips. And so they shot me down, and I'm really glad that they did, because we went back to this ASP. We did it every year that I was there, and it really changed my perspective on things. Because through service, through doing what James and Jesus talked about, by going out and literally transforming these people's homes, giving them a place to live, feeding them, putting clothes on their back, I spent time with these people. And I realized that these are very loving, kind, generous people. And that my prejudice that I had formed when I was a teenager 
that I shouldn't be applying that to this whole group of people, that that was an isolated subset. And because of my actions going down there, I really changed my beliefs. I saw things in a totally different light, and I'm so glad that that happened to me. Because if I hadn't gone on those trips, I would still hold that prejudice to this day. And so, that is an example of how your actions can really transform and lead to beliefs. And so, as we can see, both of these are effective, right? Belief leads to action as much as action leads to belief. My question is, is one more effective than the other? And I've gone back and forth on this. Sometimes I say, actually, you need belief in place. If the belief is not there, then you're not going to have the action out in the world. And then I've gone back and I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to have action and then that's going to transform it into your belief. And the truth is, is that you need both principles to be effective in your life if you are going to live into your full identity as a Christian. You need right belief and right action to be informing each other all the time. And that's why we emphasize both in this church. So you're here on Sunday morning, right? Every Sunday, if you come here, my message is always about how some belief in God can transform into us going out into the world and doing things differently. Every week, that's what it's about. So it's taking belief, putting it into the world. And then you come on Tuesday night for pads where we're working with our homeless population. Or you come for Wednesday night with family night where we're working with faith community homes and we're having a meal together, or any of other, our other service opportunities, and that's an opportunity for you to take action and use that to inform your beliefs. And so my message for you this morning is that if you are doing one of those things to the neglect of the other, you are not experiencing the full picture of what it means to be a Christian. And so my hope for you and my prayer for you is that you would examine your life and ask, where am I deficient? Am I deficient in the category of action because my belief is up here and I don't do action enough? Or vice versa? Am I really acting in the world but I don't have the belief to support it? And regardless of which one it is for you, I hope that you would try to transform that in your life. Because if you're here on Sunday morning, if you're sitting here and you never go out and live it out in the world, you need to do that. You have to put your belief into action. And vice versa, given that you're here, you clearly care about belief. If you know people in this church who are out there and they, all they do is service, you need to get them here on Sunday morning because they need their beliefs, a strong foundation of belief, to reinforce their actions. And so when I think we look at this, if we're going to conclude where we come to with Paul and James in terms of their fight, we see that neither of these men are entirely correct. These are two men at two ends of a spectrum. And really, we need to be somewhere in the middle because both principles were necessary for the church to survive in the first century, and both principles are necessary for our church to survive today in the 21st century. And so as you leave here today, may you examine your life, and may you try to lift up both your belief and your action so that you can look in the mirror and say with honesty, I am a disciple of Jesus, and I know he would be proud of both my belief and my actions. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.